going to be going through Philippians chapter 3 and chapter 4, verse 1. So, we're going to dive right in. I'm obviously not going to read the whole chapter because that will take a lot of time. But we'll jump into our first point. The first point we have is the association. The association. Within that association, we have praise. And as we go to our first verse in Philippians chapter 3, it says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now this word, finally, this is kind of weird, right? Because it's the third chapter. And there's how many chapters in Philippians? Four, right? So it's like, why is this finally thing here? Well... I'm going to quote a man that uh, many of us do respect. His name is Gordon Fee, wonderful scholar, and this is from his New International Commentary. The adverb translated finally is best understood as transitional toward the final matter to be taken up. Thus, Paul does not intend finally, but as for the rest, for what needs to be spoken to, for example, furthermore. So he's going to be continuing the argument. I just thought that was pretty interesting because when we read scripture, we want to understand what the writer is trying to say in his context at the time he said it, to whom he said it to. Does that make sense? Right. So the, the Greek phrase here often is actually uh, marked as a translation is further in the NIV. In the NLT, the New Living Translation says whatever happens. And they typically seem to be a little bit better translations there. But had to throw that out there. Because it's going to help us understand. So if you go to, furthermore, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you, once again, is not tedious. But for you, it is safe. So at this point, Paul believed that the Philippians would listen to his advice and work out the problem of their disagreements. Which leads to a deep-seated joy in the Lord's work among them. Now, the Greek verb translated rejoice is the present tense. Is the present tense. So Paul is asking for an ongoing sense of joy in the Lord. Not joy for now and no joy later. It's an ongoing thing for the rest of their natural lives. So God is in charge. And he infuses believers with spiritual strength to bring peace and unity to the church and to turn the pressure from the pagans, which you see in chapter 1, 27 to 30, into victory in Christ. The command to rejoice has come twice before in the letter. The letter to the Philippians, the entire epistle. It's, um, it's in verses, uh, well, chapter 1, verse 18 and Chapter 2, 17 to 18, both times in a response to the advice or to the advance of the gospel, even though they were going through opposition and hardship. So Christians were in these adverse circumstances, for it then must center entirely in the Lord, not in the circumstances themselves. Your rejoicing, your joy must be in the Lord, not in the circumstances. I heard a preacher say to me 
one time. He said, happiness is about happenings. Joy is contentment. You get happy when you get something new, right? You get an Amazon package, you get a little happy, right? You get excited, but when something bad happens, you're like, oh. And then you're in an emotional roller coaster, right? Yet, Paul's saying don't do that. Christ is constant. Our emotions are not. Our feelings are not. Our thoughts are not. So Paul is saying rejoice continually all the time until you go home to be with him. And then you're glorified at that point. And then you're going to be rejoicing consistently because you're going to be with God. So as we look at Philippians 1.18, the other side of when, when he talked about rejoice, it says, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. See, Paul even rejoiced, even though preaching, uh, his preaching rivals tried to send him insulting attacks. They tried to preach from their own self-will. It was about them, them being on the pulpit, for, for example. And then it's about them preaching for their own selfish reason not to glorify Christ. But he, you know what? He still rejoiced, even throughout all that. And then Philippians chapter 2, 17 and 18 says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. In chapter 2, 17 and 18, he experienced joy even while being faced with the possibility of his soon-to-be execution. Let me tell you about what happens with people. When they come to the realization that they could die, Christian or non-Christian, they freak out. They freak out. They're like, you know, they've been Christians their whole lives, 40, 50 years, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh man, this whole death thing is real. You know why? Because people understand it from an extrinsic perspective. They don't understand it from an intrinsic uh, perspective. When you truly under something, understand something, it's intrinsic. So Paul is saying, while he's in prison, right, rejoice. And, you know, hey, I might be executed soon, but rejoice. This is why one of the most misquoted verses, which Pastor Jay is going to go over in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, does not mean that. Well, I can do whatever I want because God's going to strengthen me. I can go start a business. I can go do this. No, 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 no. When you're being obedient to God, that's when he strengthens you. And you're doing his work. Now, I know Pastor Jay is going to go through that, and he's going to do that in an extent. But you see that in the consistency that to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, the point for us is that God's presence turns even the most difficult situation into an occasion for joy. Because we know that our loving Father will not just get us uh, through the valley but bring us to victory in that defeat. So this command was not meant to sum up Paul's earlier remarks and further in the letter and the note of joy. So we are to be joyful. Now, 
further in verse 1 in chapter 3, it says, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. This kind of reminds me of like, you ever watch people who say, well, you know, I've read the Bible before. There's a reason why you have to keep reading the Bible. It's a safeguard. And that's what this word actually means. This word, not just safe, it's a safeguard. It's guarding against things, right? So Paul was introducing what he was uh, to do to write about the next, that the Philippians watch out for false teachers. You see that in, three, in chapter 3, verse 18, and uh, chapter 1, 25 to 30. And repeated warnings about false teachers would intend to be a safeguard. Right, so he also speaks about the spiritual stability for that because if you have a bunch of false teachers that come in, you're going to ruin the spiritual stability of the church. So Paul is indicating that these warnings were needed in order to stabilize the congregation and to avert any kind of theological chaos that will result from following the Judaizers' heresy. So we're going to go through the Judaizers in a moment. So now there's a problem. And remember what I told you. With Paul, there's always a problem. He's always correcting things. In verse 2, by the way, harsh language here. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. This is harsh. I'll explain why it's harsh. Now, Paul used the word beware three times to describe a hostile group and using three different derogatory terms. This isn't like, yo, dog. No, this is, you're a dog. Like, it's a disgusting thing to them. So dogs were regarded by Jews as despised and unclean creatures. And it was common for Orthodox Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs. However, here Paul switched the designation to refer to not to Gentiles, but to the extreme faction in the church, the Judaizers. He also called them evil workers because Jews regarded themselves as good workers, not evil workers, because they kept the law. Paul labeled them as evil, not because they were immoral, but because they, the reliance on the law lessens their reliance on God. Now, their emphasis on workers would ruin, on the works, would ruin the Paul's teachings that you are saved by grace and not works. Finally, he called them those who mutilate the flesh. See, there were some Jewish Christians wrongly believed that it was essential for Gentiles to follow the Old Testament Jewish laws, especially submission to the rite of circumcision, which here he calls mutilation. He actually doesn't use the word for circumcision here. He uses the word for mutilation. So the word for circumcision, which is in the next verse, is different from in the Greek than the word for mutilation and rightly translated. And this mutilation refers to a pagan mutilation of the flesh. This is the most serious of the charges against these opponents because circumcision is at the heart of Jewish conception and covenant encompassing the whole idea of the Torah observance. If you don't know the Torah, it's the first five books of Moses, also known as the Pentateuch. 
So, so in effect, those who promoted circumcision actually rejected the new covenant established by Jesus Christ through the cross, trying to return to the old covenant, they ended up with no covenant at all. Paul insisted that they were entirely cut off from God and from the grace and mercy of Christ. While there is nothing wrong with circumcision itself, Paul maintained that it was wrong to teach circumcision as a requirement for salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Point blank. Now, if you look at Genesis 17, verse 10 to 12, here's where you're going to start seeing works. And this is the, the covenant with Abraham, and you're going to see circumcision here. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. This is very important. You're going to see this with Paul a little bit later when he starts to give his, um, his pedigree. Every male child in your generation, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. So understand, the first people that were circumcised were grown men. How old was Abraham when he was first circumcised? Dr. J is not allowed to answer. He can just stay over there. He was 99 years old. At 99, I don't want to deal with that. It's the same. So you see, right off the bat, in Genesis, you see that all Jews had to be circumcised. Now, this is the spiritual application for the physical mark. All right? The spirit is in Deuteronomy, which is within the first five books of Moses. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Which is the first of the greatest commandments? To love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? So I wonder where they got, Jesus got it from. You know, he wrote, he's God, wrote the entire Bible and it's in Deuteronomy. So it's about circumcision of the heart, a change in the person. Now in verse 3, in Philippians chapter 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. This is where it's going to start getting a little interesting. So Paul's explained that it is we believers in Christ who are the circumcision. In other words, at the time of the physical sign of circumcision had set God's people, the Jews, apart from the Gentiles. After Jesus Christ, though, all the people could become part of God's family by believing in Jesus the Savior. The Christian church, here's the Christian church, ready? It's made up of the circumcised Jews and the uncircumcised Gentiles. Is 
This is the true circumcision because circumcision is no longer merely a bodily mark. Instead, it is a newly spiritual meaning. Only in coming to God by faith in Christ, which you just heard me quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. One can receive the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, 14 to 17. And the seal of the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, and chapter 4, verse 30. Interestingly enough, all those passages were written by the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see why that's important in just a moment. Now, to further just expound on this, on this passage, in verse 3, he says, in the first, you see three different points here. The worship in the spirit, the boast in Christ Jesus, and they have no confidence in the flesh. So the first thing that we look to is believers worship by the means of God's spirit and in God's spirit. So believers worship by means of God's spirit and in God's spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is vital to the entire aspect of the Christian life. The word rejoice, where it's translated in the New King James, where it says boast, is actually translated rejoice, but I think boast brings out um, more of the Greek uh, meaning, which means to exalt. Exalt. The verb is one of Paul's favorites and occurring about 30 times in his writings. 30 times. Paul's using it here to say that a true believer exalts no, no one else other than Christ, not in their works. And there's no way that through their works they can save themselves. It's only in Christ alone. So the Judaizers, and now you see no confidence in the flesh, quite literally. You guys didn't get that one? Circumcision. <laughs> the Judaizers depend on their obedience to the Jewish law and specifically the covenant of circumcision uh, to make them acceptable to God. By contrast, true believers did not place their confidence in anything they did or didn't do, but in what God through Jesus Christ had done for them. You're starting to get the concept of where righteousness comes from, right? So now we go to the personality. In verses 4 through 6. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal. Now listen to this. Persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. As a Pharisee, he was commissioned to persecute the church. And he did it with pleasure. He killed Christians. He beat Christians, oversaw the martyrdom of Stephen. That's Paul. So this is Paul listing his credentials. 
in a law-oriented Judaism to demonstrate that he is that the false teachers could not match his record of righteous achievements according to the flesh. That is, through personal effort to comply with God's commandments. And more important, Paul will assert that he has discarded as worthless this entire collection of human performance for the sake of the infinite worth of knowing Christ. And we'll go through that in the next four verses. So interesting, look, he cites his circumcision first, right? Because all Jewish males at eight days old must be circumcised. So by the law of Moses, specified in Genesis chapter 17, because the Judaizers, uh, teachers stress this right as a way to identify God's people. See, Paul's image, lineage as belonging to the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin set him apart also because the tribe of Benjamin, along with Judah, stayed to stay true and loyal to the Davidic dynasty when the kingdom was divided in First, in first Kings chapter 12. See, though they raised in the Jewish dispersion, during the Jewish dispersion, after the Babylonian captivity and then the Persian captivity and then they were released, Many Jews didn't go back to Israel. Notice his name, his Hebrew name is Saul of what? Tarsus. Where's Tarsus? Modern day Turkey. Doesn't sound like Israel. So th now this is very interesting because during the dispersion period, Paul knows he's from the tribe of what? Benjamin. Oh, yeah, he's a Pharisee. He had to know Hebrew. He had to know Aramaic, which was the common language at the time. And he knew Greek. He was a Hebrew scholar. So during all this time, during the dispersion period, Paul learned the language of the scriptures from his Hebrew-speaking parents. As a Pharisee, he strove to adhere strictly to the law of Moses, and that's in Acts Chapter 22, verse 3, and Acts 26, verse 5. His zeal was expressed in the persecution of fellow Jews who proclaimed Jesus. The one who claimed to be the Messiah. Paul was completely faultless under the law because he, he endeavored with meticulous care not to disobey the law. And when he did, when he did sin... He offered the sacrifice prescribed by the law. While no human can obey the law perfectly, Paul's former point of the view as a Pharisee, he was faultless. This man was in line to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the top 70 members in Israel. The 71st member is the high priest. They ran stuff. It was like the Jewish mob. No. <laughs> Politicians. Even worse. <laughs> Shots fired. So now as we move on to, you have the attitude. And then the denouncement. This is important. This points directly to secular humanism. But what things were, 
gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. My Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see the concept of gaining and losing. Paul's accounting. Paul's accounting changed and changed completely that formerly went into the gain column, his power, his prestige, his obedience, now goes into the loss column. The crucified Messiah, whom he had assumed must be a loss, as seen as the ultimate gain, all the things he achieved in life, he says he cuts it as a loss. To Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things. Did he say some things? He says all things. You notice Paul's language throughout Philippians, it's like an all or nothing thing. You ever notice that about Paul? It's an all or nothing thing with him. I also count all things lost for the excellence. Now, for the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, he's acknowledging Jesus Christ as his absolute master. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. By the way, as an apostate, as a Jewish apostate, people hated him. He has lost all of his prestige. As a Pharisee, guess what? He had some money. Shkarol, right? He had some cash. It's gone. He's given everything up for Christ. And you know what? He still counts everything as a loss. And he counts them as rubbish. Better translated. Garbage, even worse. Animal excrement. Poo-poo. So, I count them as poo-poo. That's the... New millennial translation. No. Have you ever thought of your life like that? All the things you have accomplished prior to coming to know Christ as rubbish. It's nothing. It's worthless. How many titles you have? How long have you gone to school? How many degrees you have? How much money do you have? The world tells you it's all about these things. It's a complete lie. Because none of those things bring happiness. Because you're going to be happy for a moment. And then you're not going to be happy because you're going to get bored with that thing. And then you're going to go get something else. You notice marriages are getting killed. Like I think it's 52% divorce rate. So getting married, you have a one and two shot. So it's like, hey, the first one. Might not work out, but maybe the second one. Marriage is not supposed to be like that. It's till death do you part. This is humanism. This is all about yourself. This is a direct lie from the devil that this is what you're worth. Doesn't matter what your job is, that's not what you're worth. You're creating the image and likeness of God. You're crowned with glory and honor. You've been given dominion over the earth. 
And as a Christian, you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You're grafted into the fold. You're an adopted child. You have a brand new inheritance of eternal life. I don't know. That beats everything else. But Paul here says, all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now as we move on to divine. Verses 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul was looking forward to the day of Christ. When Christ would return and what, or when Paul died. Paul wanted to be found in Christ. That is, a living in a union with Christ. Any believer living in Christ and Christ in him or her has been given by God's mercy and grace true righteousness. This is a right standing with God. So no amount of law keeping, self-improvement, self-discipline, righteous religious effort can make anyone right with God. In an age where it's all about self-development and self-this and self. You know it's a lot of self, right? It's not I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So these things may give a false sense of righteousness. They can never hold up under God's scrutiny. So the Judaizers here had such righteousness, righteousness. But it was merely their own righteousness. They simply were meeting their own standards and keeping the law. Sounds like people, right? Their own standards. It's called relativism. Not a good thing. So not even Paul, with all his credentials and his accomplishments, accomplishments could have been good enough so true righteousness comes only through faith in Christ thus it is righteousness from God based on faith believers are made righteous by their faith in Christ's sacrifice on the cross on their behalf because of Jesus' death on the cross God can exchange our sin and shortcomings for his complete righteousness. How's that? How's that a deal? Hey, I'll give you all the stuff, the bad stuff I have, and I want all the good stuff you got. That's a deal of a lifetime. Make him an offer he can't refuse. How do people refuse it? I do nothing and gain everything. How's that make sense? It doesn't. According to this world, every, as, a, as a person that's been in business, I've learned this. Every time you make a deal, what do you want to do? You want to make a profit, right? But you always have to have something to give. What do you give? Nothing. 
You, ha- you put your faith in Jesus. That's it. You don't have to perform religious gymnastics. You don't have to get a tattoo. You don't have to give an exorbitant amount of money. Nothing you can do could save you. And this is the ultimate deal in the world. And he's going against these Judaizers who say, hey, listen, you got to get circumcised. He's like, no, you don't. Hello? Hebrew of Hebrews, you're not. That's pretty much what he said. In a way, we humans will never understand. God made him Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in 2 Corinthians 5.21. As a side note, there is a gentleman who calls himself a preacher. I will highly disagree with that as a credential. I'm not going to mention his name, but he did say something ridiculously stupid. He said that Jesus became sin. That meant that Jesus became gossip, sexual immorality, and all this other stuff. That passage is saying that he took on the sins of the world upon himself. That's what it means. He didn't become anything. He didn't sin, never sinned. He took on sin as the perfect atoning sacrifice for us. So I had to say that because I know this guy's a popular guy, and he just completely missed the mark. So believers are offered this gift. All we have to do is accept it. We, have, we are considered righteous at the moment we believe. We are gradually working out the fruit of our righteousness, a righteous life, on a day-to-day basis as we live in Christ, and he lives in and through us. All you have to do is receive it, put your faith in it. That's it. Coming from the guy who did religious gymnastics to the best of his ability and did it better than everybody else. He says, no, not worth it. Now we move to our desire. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The verb phrase here, to know him, right, that I may know him, is infinitive of purpose showing God's intended result in granting us his salvation. So this is the real sense describes our sanctification. So when you come to know Christ, when you put your faith in him, you are justified. You're made right before God. And then your Christian life is called sanctification. That is work. Yeah, because you're constantly seeking God and tra- and your life is being transformed. So here's a work. You know, Now, I'm not saying salvation requires works. I might not say that. I said sanctification requires work. means that you have to constantly seek God. You're reading the word. You're praying. You want God to transform you into the image of his son. So I don't want people to think that I'm thinking that, you know, you're saved by works by any means. You're not. You're saved by faith alone. So this is a lifelong process of a deeper and deeper experience with Christ that will culminate in what 
Paul describes in verse 21. We're going to go through verse 21. I just want to point out how all this connects. Now, where it says our lowly bodies will be transformed to resemble his glorious body. In the short lives we live, we will never exhaust the richness of the personal relationship with him. In the short lives we live, we will never exhaust the richness of the personal relationship with him at all. That we get to the point where no matter how long we're with him, we are always amazed by his glory, his grace, and his mercy. And we start to understand him a little bit more. And that's the goal of the Christian life, is to know God better. J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he makes a point that there's a gentleman named John Calvin. If you don't know who he is, he was a wonderful scholar, expositor of the word. And J.I. Packer said that this guy named John Bunyan, he was a Puritan who wrote the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Highly recommend that book. He said that John Calvin knew more about God, yet John Bunyan knew God better. And the goal is to know God better. So I thought that was really interesting. In verse 10, it says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The next two elements of the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering further explain what it means to know Christ deeply. The goal of trusting in Christ is to know him, that is to know him in a personal relationship and also to know the power of his resurrection, namely the power of Christ, which exerts now from the right hand of God. This power is made known as the believer who shares in the same kind of suffering Jesus faced, the sufferings that attend the faithful witness in the fallen world. We are to suffer a little bit. Christianity is not for the faint-hearted. I'm telling you, it's not. You can see stories upon stories. The first 300 years of Christianity, you say you're a Christian, you know what it meant? Death sentence. You're going to be persecuted. And suffering brings us closer to Christ. Glory and tribulations. Tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Romans 5, 3 through 5. And that word for character is approved character. There's a reason why we do go through sufferings. And no matter what, you're going to suffer in your life. You guys got problems? I got problems. We all got problems. People have problems. The question is, what is your confidence in? Now, determination. If by any means I may attain the resurrection of the dead, in verse 11, Paul anticipates that being conformed to Christ's death will lead to a new life in the power of Christ's resurrection. The resurrection from the dead probably refers to the resurrection of the Christians. Um, at the time of Christ's return, the resurrection is apart from the other dead people. The good news is that those who suffer with and for Christ will attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, number three, the ambition. 
first point under here is following. In verse 12 it says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Now Paul is stressing here that he has not already been perfected. He's not perfect. He's still involved with the struggles of the life in a fallen world, and he still sins. We still fall short. It says, fall of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Now, he still says he presses on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. There is a balance of faith and works of God's call in the believer's response. Faith and works. This is a very interesting thing. What do I do as a Christian? Well, you're saved through faith, right? But guess what? As a believer, you're to do certain works. Like, you know, you're to serve people. Serving is part of a work, right? I'm not saying, once again, that you're not saved by any works by any means. But you are to do certain things. Service, reading your Bible, you're supposed to love the church, the people. You're supposed to live a life of servitude. Remember, your entire life should be serving. I don't mean join 10,000 ministries like some people think. But do what God's called you to do to the best of your ability. Now forgetting. In verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. So Paul hasn't attained completion or complete knowledge of Christ. Paul did not consider that he had achieved spiritual maturity. He is not perfected, but he lived in absolute confidence of his ultimate salvation. Christians know they will be saved. Yet they must have perfection as the goal. For me to live is Christ. Christ lived a perfect life. Now, disclaimer, you're never going to live a perfect life. You're to live a life of excellence. That's working towards it. Working to imitate Christ in everything you do. Now, firm. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the goal, Paul's pointing to the athletic imagery that um, the Philippians would have understood because of the Greek culture. Paul's ultimate goal is knowing Christ's resurrection power and dwelling within him in the age to come. Now, fellowship. In 15 and 16, therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you, nevertheless, to the degree that which, have, which we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. So 
in effect, if you are really perfect mature, you will realize you are not really perfect and mature. Here's spiritual maturity. You realize your sin more and more. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good measure. The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Christian maturity involves acting on the guidance that we have already received. So the word, the term here, let us, means to keep in line or to keep in step with. So Paul knew that the believers were in different stages, but everyone needs to be faithful to what they understood. So keep in step and be of the same mind. Now, number four, you have the appearance and the pattern. In verse 17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul wasn't perfect, but he was confident enough in his Christian walk to ask Philippians to join him in following his example. So imitating me, other mature Christians, much Christian growth comes through imitating other Christians. Part of it was called discipleship. You're to imitate, imitate someone else, but you're supposed to imitate someone that's living a godly life. Now, another problem in Paul's letter here, in chapter. Verses 18 and 19, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They walk as enemies of the cross. No one knows precisely the identity of these um, specific individuals. But Paul does give a fourfold snapshot of their way of life in verses 19. And is destruction, whose God is their belly, too, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Their final destination is destruction. Now, this is going to be answered here in pride. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Now, Paul associates them with this sensual pleasures and shameful behavior, suggesting they are libertines. Rather than keeps the law, destruction could be the Judaizers of the worldly people in general, their destiny, final judgment, they worship themselves, their belly. So libertines, they're people that just do what they want to do when they want to do it. That's pretty much what it is. So their God is their belly. Their pleasure is their God. Sounds like humanism. You notice that this consistent theme, it's the constant denying of yourself. Constantly denying of your pleasure. You notice that? 
Because your pleasure, it distracts you from God. You're more, these guys are more worried about filling up their own bellies with their own pleasure than serving God. It's all about me, 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 I, I, I. My daughter's two years old. You know what she says? Me, me, I. She's a little sinner. I'll teach her to repent later. <laughs> but we are automatically, me, I, how can this benefit me? They are completely consumed with the things of this world, earthly things. Now we move on to the purity. Verses 19 20. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you're probably wondering why am I going through that verse again, but this is interesting because you have to read them together. So the answer of these false teachers. And their earth-centered religion and lifestyle was the truth about heaven. This culminates the entire chapter 3 and its emphasis on striving for more of Christ in light of the heavenly reality that awaits us. The point is that when we center on our future hope and the certain promise of eternal glory... The things of this world will fail to enslave us and we will be enabled to live a holy life for God. The things of this world enslave you. Enslave you completely. Now, see, the basic point is evident here. When we read 19 and 20 together, their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. The earth-heaven separation here is very clear. Heaven is not merely a future reality we will someday enjoy. It is a present kingdom that we already received our citizenship there. From the moment we find Christ, we enter into a new relationship with our new homeland, we are no longer primarily American citizens, British citizens, Puerto Rican citizens. This is temporary. Now, this doesn't mean you just sit on your bus and just do whatever you want. This doesn't mean you just sit down and just wait and sit around and do nothing. You're citizens of heaven, yes. But yet, your secondary home is where? New Jersey. True story. So, yes, I'm not telling you, to, I'm not going to do a political thing, but you should get involved in what's going on in the world. You're not to just sit around and do nothing. So, I'm saying that because there's many Christians that believe that they should sit there and do nothing. I'm like, no, Paul was someone of an advocate, and his citizenship mattered. And many Christians before us, 
So that's my little rant on that. We're going to go back into Scripture. <laughs> Verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to even to subdue all things to himself, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Roman Empire, the empire was known, the emperor, I'm sorry, was known as the Savior and Lord. So by implying these titles to Jesus, Paul is calling the Philippians to live under the authority and reign of the universe's true Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. To transform our lowly bodies, those who believe in Christ, he will raise their bodies and their bodies will be transformed. Now five, abiding. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, my beloved and long-forward brethren, brethren, my joy and crown, so steadfast, or stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Because of the amazing and uh, certain promises, therefore, the believers in Philippi ought to stand fast or stand firm in the Lord against false teachers and divisiveness within the persecution or from without. Do you know what you're supposed to do when someone tries to divide within the church? Does anyone know? Does anyone know? Not Dr. J. No. <laughs> you to boot them. Excommunicate. Get out. It's so important here because when you start seeing false teaching, bad theology, and divisiveness, it destroys the body of Christ. And he's telling them this is why it's a safeguard. You saw that earlier in the chapter, in chapter 3. So we are to stand firm. It's always used as the beginning of Paul's exhortations. Paul underscores the love of the believers in calling them brothers and sisters, my joy, my crown, and my beloved. And repeating how he loved and missed them. This congregation was so dear to Paul's heart. His words to them were very, very important. He cared so much about their, their souls. When Paul refers to the Philippians as his crown, he could mean that they would be his reward of spiritual success. So as we move on to our application, apply now, because now you apply. Found in him. If you could, let's say if you could choose to have a lost day. Let's say if you're a jazz lover, you might select New Orleans. A scuba diver, go to the Great Barrier Reef. A baseball fan, Cooperstown, New York. After the lost day, you'd be found full of your experiences. Even more ground in music, tropical fish, sports trivia than before. But being found 
in Jesus Christ is paradoxical. It's like being lost in him. Being lost in that relationship is to be happily abandoned to Christ. See, time flies, love grows, your fascination with Jesus grows stronger than ever. Incorporate your life into Jesus Christ to be found in him. You must live for him now. The second is an honest self-assessment. See, lots of people may rate you highly in school tests or job performance. You may even place yourself as Paul rated himself high on the scale of success. But God has the last word. Guess what? No other evaluations count. Only Jesus matters. And the rest of you can throw it all away. All the rest of the stuff, you can throw it away. See, God gives salvation as a gift, not to be won by a test. Our success sometimes reflects, but never earns God's approval. Our success may reflect, but never ever, ever earns God's approval. The next time you tally up your success, ask how Jesus regards it all. And now we go to our questions. You have three questions today, and you have Bible verses to go with them. What is the basis of your confidence? Be honest. Two passages you could study. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5, and Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And then, what have you accomplished? Philippians 3, 6 to 8. And the last question, which is the first question, where does your righteousness come from? Romans chapter 10, 2 and 4. Now you can break up in groups. Break up in groups. Ahora.